Good morning. Wow, it's great to see you today. We are glad that you're here on this beautiful, sunny day in South Carolina. Isn't it wonderful? Boy, it's just great. We're glad you're here. So turn to someone around you and say good morning if you don't mind doing that for a moment, if you're comfortable. And then tell them we've made it. Say to them, we've made it. Okay, say that to them for a moment. We've made it. Say that. You say, Mark, I have no idea what you're talking about. Did we make it to church? I don't know what you're talking about. Well, here's what we have made it to. Today is Romans chapter 11. You say, what's so real special about Romans chapter 11? You've been in Romans for 20 weeks now, Mark. Well, here's what is very special about today when I say to you that say to your neighbor, we've made it. Because 9, 10, and 11 theologically is known as the three most difficult chapters in the entire Bible. And you guys have studied through that with us. And that is absolutely amazing. A lot of people, when they teach the book of Romans, will not teach 9, 10, and 11 because they view them, well, a couple of ways. First is this. They view them as being very ethnic specific, meaning that 9, 10, and 11 was written by Paul, who is Jewish, to his Jewish brothers and sisters. So it really doesn't apply for those of us in the room that are Gentiles. And the second reason is that it's very difficult and it can be extremely confusing some of the phrases and the things and the words that Paul uses throughout those three chapters, 9, 10, and 11. But I think that there are some things there that you and I need to hear, especially from chapter 11 today. So let's start right away, get right into our study this morning. And, uh, and I'm going to read to you from chapter 11, the first part of verse 1, and it says this, I ask then, and Paul has started out other texts this way also, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By the word, or this phrase, his people, write Israel. Contextually, he's speaking to the Jewish people. And so what we really understand when he starts this out, he is saying to you, hey, wait a minute, there is something that you might assume in this chapter that is not going to be absolutely correct in the way that you assume it. Now, I don't know if you've ever assumed something and found out later that you were completely wrong in your assumption of someone. Maybe you have assumed how someone feels. You know, you say the thing to them like, hey, I know how you feel. That's sometimes the worst thing you could ever say to anybody, right? Because their response is, you have no idea how I feel. And then they tell you how they feel. So it's an assumption that Paul is assuming that we're going to make about the next verses that we're going to be reading together. And so the question is, has God rejected Israel? And if God has rejected Israel, if that's what we're going to read, and if that's really what is happening here, then what does that do for us, right? If that's his people, then what is that going to do for you and I as Gentiles? And so did God reject Israel Or is this there a greater meaning for you and I in these verses that we're going to read in a moment? Because I think that we can draw this conclusion very swiftly and we can miss the truth that is such a dynamic truth for us today to take away as we leave this place. Is this rejection or is this the sovereign hand of a loving and a merciful God working in a way that we really don't understand in our humanity? And I think those are the questions that we have to answer together. So in order to do that, we have to start in the book of Genesis. You say, Mark, you always start in the book of Genesis. I know. I love it. Because why? It's a very foundation of our, our belief and our understanding of who God is, his character and his nature. And, and so I want to start there with you in Genesis chapter 12. Why? Because it helps us to understand 
how God sees his people, Israel, and how he sees you and I. Because in chapter 12, what God does, that he gives Abraham a promise. And he says to Abraham, first of all, I want you to leave where you're living, and I want you to go, and I want you to become this father of a nation that does not yet exist. And so what does Abraham do? Abraham hears the voice of sovereign God, and then responsibility is to obey. And that's exactly what he does. And so he obeys God's voice. And so what we realize is the promise is not just for him to be the father of the nation of Israel. But yet he says that you're going to be a father of a nation that is going to bless all the other nations in the world, Jewish and that of Gentile alike. It's powerful promise that God makes to him and he makes to you and I. And then if you go a few chapters forward in chapter 15, God makes a covenant. He seals this promise with a covenant. A covenant is that where you seal it with blood. It's kind of like in my kind of thinking, right? It's, it's where God has skin in the game and Abraham has some skin in the game, so to speak. So there's a covenant that's made. And God says, well, I'm going to make you this father of a great nation. You're going to make a sacrifice. You're going to seal this promise for all time. And then I'm going to give you a son. And he says, but wait a minute, I'm childless. You know, Abraham always had a way of kind of reminding God of what he's forgotten, right? Yes. So I ask you, how many of you in your life have ever kind of, well, in some way reminded God about maybe something that he forgot about your life? Raise your hand if you've ever done that. Good. The rest of you don't even understand the question, right? Yes, because we have done that. We have. Yes. God, don't you know that I am, right? And you fill in the blank after that. And, and so we, we've all done that. And so he says, don't you know that I'm child, childless? And, and the only heir I have is Eleazar of Damascus, my goofy nephew. And, and God, you're not going to build a nation on this goofy nephew of mine, Eleazar from Damascus. And God says, hang on, I got this. Yeah, just calm down. Because I'm going to give you a child. I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to give you a son who will be the heir, whom on which you will build this great nation that I've called you to build. It's such a powerful thing. So Abraham, as this great man of faith who never fails God, wrong, right? Right, because what does Abraham do? He takes things into his own hands later on. We know that. But yet what we realize is that all of this is based on, here is the point, God's faithfulness, not Abraham's faithfulness. And what I realize about what God does in my life it is very much based on his faithfulness and not mine. Aren't you glad? Yeah, just think if you were the foundation of all of this. If your faithfulness to God, if your faithfulness in keeping all of things that you've ever promised to God was built upon, that was built upon your faithfulness and not his, then we would all be really out of luck in a lot of ways in life. We'd be really in trouble. And so when I read chapter 11 of Paul's writings here, I can draw this wrong conclusion. He starts out with this question, if God, you know, because if God relents, with this unconditional promise that he has made to Abraham, how do we know that God will not do the same to us? How do we know that? Because he's God and he won't do that. Well, how do you know? Because he's God. I know, I know he's God, but God can do anything that he wants, right? Can, can I get an amen? Yes? Good. So God can do anything he wants. Why? Who is going to smack God's hand, right? Who is going to put God in the corner? Nobody is going to do that because he is God. So what if God relents on this promise? And where does that leave you and I? How much do you trust God? 
Because if you think about your, your, the entirety of your life, the entirety of your, your eternity is all based on some promises from this God that you trust. Do you realize how much trust that you have placed within him this morning? You have. And if he is going to relent on this promise to Abraham about Israel, because most of Israel at this point, we've discovered, has rejected the, the gospel then how do you know that God is not going to do the same to you? Can I tell you? And listen, before I go any further, God is faithful. Understand that. And I'm not I'm just I'm just posing some questions to get you to think this morning. God is absolutely faithful. But what I realize is this. God does not reject Israel. We're going to discover that in a moment. And I, and I realize that. But but they're so bound in their unbelief and their rejection of the gospel that God could do that. God has all the rights to do that. God absolutely is justified in doing all of that, but yet He doesn't. And why doesn't He? Wow. It's a thought. So here is the first thought for you and I this morning. It's this, is, is, is this rejection or this is perceived rejection? So go back to Romans 11. Let's start reading, starting with verse 1 again. I asked then, has God rejected His people? And Paul says, by no means! Exclamation point. By absolutely no means. Yes. But if you look at the text 9 and 10 that we've studied already, we realize that most of the Jewish people have rejected the message of the gospel. And, and, and so we would assume that maybe God has failed in this of reaching his people. And Paul says, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let me give you some proof to this that God has not rejected them. So he starts. He says, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. And God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, he says. But you, but you um, do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? He, so he brings Elijah into this conversation how he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed my prophets and they have demolished your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time there is a remnant, he says, chosen by grace, important. I underline that. Verse 6, but if it is by grace... It is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Then what I realize is that God has not rejected Israel, not because there's a remnant. It's not because there's 7,000 of them. It's not because there is Paul and the apostles and the others that have chose to embrace that of the gospel. It's not that at all. But this is all about grace. Because if it's about anything other than that, it's works. And grace would no longer be grace, he's saying to us. So it's not that there is this small group left. The reason that God is merciful and gracious and has not rejected Israel is because of his grace in life. And that is so powerful for us because it is a snapshot of the very nature and the character of God. It is. It's God's heart toward you and I. When we harden our heart toward God, when we reject God, God does not reject us. Realize that. That when we reject God, God does not reject us. That he is absolutely committed to finishing what he has begun within our lives. Boy, we, we can build our life on that understanding, on that promise this morning it is. So Paul says, but wait a minute. He knows us. He says, you're hard-headed. 
And, and I don't know if you can, you know, describe yourself as being thick skulled or not, whatever. You know, you're, you're very focused and opinionated and, and you, uh, you, you know your way and you're going to go that way no matter what. Well, Paul says, for all of those that think like that, can I give you some proof that God has not rejected Israel? And he said, first of all, look at me. That's what he says. He said, first of all, look at me. He says, I'm, I'm a Jew. In fact, he says in the portions of the New Testament that he is like the Jew of all Jews, that he's super Jewish is what he is because of his, his uh, understanding of the scriptures is what he simply says. Of all people, he says he is, so, he is very Jewish, but he's saved by grace that I've embraced the gospel. My heart was once hardened toward the gospel. He said, but God did not reject me. What he's saying to you and I, is that if God were going to reject anyone, it would have been me. But God has not rejected me. And then he says, hey, let me give you some more proof. Those of you that are really struggling with all of this, let me give you more proof. And he said, he said it's those that he foreknew. We just read that in this text. He said, if it's not enough about me, then it's those that he foreknew. And what he does, again, he takes us back to an understanding of the book of Genesis. Abraham has two sons, right? He has two sons. One, that of Isaac, and the other is Ishmael. He has two sons. One is God's idea. One's Abraham's idea, right? One embraces faith. The other one rejects faith. And what I realize about the promise that God made to Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 12 was not necessarily about ethnicity, but it was about our heart. It was about us embracing the gospel is what it's about. It gets to our heart every time it is. And so what I realize is God chose us. It's not just the DNA of of that, of being connected to Abraham, but yet it is the fact that God chose us. It's a matter of our own heart that we embrace that faith. Last week I quoted you know, I always say that if you can't figure out how to say something, find somebody smarter than you and quote them. And, and so Martin Lloyd-Jones says that we're responsible. We are responsible for our rejection of the gospel, but we're not responsible for our acceptance of it. Yes, that this was always God's idea. Understand that. There, and anything outside of looking at it uh, less than God's idea makes it a matter of works. And then what Paul says this, then grace is not grace is what he says, that he chose us. And then he says, wait a minute. For those of you that don't believe that, let me give you one more. And he brings in Elijah. And Elijah, here's Elijah. Elijah's sitting on Mount Horeb, and he's having this moment with God, right? And we would say that, well, he's up there praying. I don't know. He's complaining, right? Has your prayers ever turned into complaints? I don't know if they have or not, but they probably have. He's, he's, he's airing grievances is what he's doing. This is what he's doing. And it's not even festivus. And, and so he's airing grievances. If you don't know what that is, Google it. But, but the thing is that he's airing grievances with God. He's opening up his heart and opening up his mind to God. And he's saying, God, I'm the only one left in Israel that trusts you. I'm the only one. This is what the world has come to. This is the last chapter of my life. I wouldn't have written it this way, but this is the last chapter of my life. I'm the only one that trusts God left in Israel. And then God says, wait a minute, hang on. That there are 7,000 men who have never bowed a knee to an idol. Understand that, that there's this remnant. So don't give up. And when I begin to think about these 
these examples that Paul gives you and I about rejection and about how God deals with us in that of his, his unconditional grace, what I realize is this, that when you're in those moments of your life, when you're in that place of your life, when you feel like this may be the last chapter of my life, this is not the way I wrote this. This is not the way I wanted it to turn out. You discover that God has been working all along a plan throughout your life. And it's not about rejection, but it's about acceptance. Listen, I realized something about the Lord. It didn't take me long to know this. God is not obligated to always share his plan with you. Did you know that? Did you know that? Yeah? Yeah. He's not obligated to lay out a roadmap for you for your life. He is not. In fact, what I realize is this, that if I do know too much about that plan for my life, then I begin to trust in my knowing, right? Instead of trusting in God. And I found myself there many times in my life. What the reality is, what grows my faith, what grows my faith in God is simply trusting in my not knowing. That's exactly what it does. It pushes me to God. It realizes there are questions I have that there are no answers to. There are things that I cannot understand. I'm suffering. I'm, I'm struggling to see God's hand at work in my life right now. What is God doing? Things are not working out the way that I think they should. So maybe God has rejected me for all the times I've rejected him. And what Paul is making a point to you and I is this. God does not reject us. As long as you are living, God has a plan for your life. Realize that. He has a plan for you this morning. And and I think you have to wrap your mind around that. What you have perceived as rejection, maybe because of where you are in your walk with God, or something that's going on in your life, and you feel like God has somehow abandoned you. Understand this, God has a plan. He has a plan. And it may be from a direction that you never dreamed of. That's the way he works, right? Yes. I know that Reba and I spent seven and a half years in a situation where we would ask God daily, God, what's your plan? Lord, please throw me a bone. I need a bone, God. Just something, you know. God, I need something. And God would always say, trust me. Trust me. Trust me. What is your plan, God? Is this, is this where we're going to be the rest of our life? And what we did is 14 years ago, when we drove up for our very first service here at Hope Fellowship in what is now Papa's and Beer, that restaurant, and we walked inside, all of a sudden, for both of us, we realized, God, this is your plan for us. We know that. This is where you had us in this place. We were struggling to see your hand within our lives, but we realize now that you do have a plan for our lives. It comes from areas and ways that you don't always see. So I read an article about this and my research about this, and it was so powerful. The point was brought out like this. I mean, who would have thought that, who would have thought simply that the Roman Empire, empire as pagan and as, as brutalistic as it was, who would have thought that it would become the seat of Christianity? Who would have ever thought that? We would have never seen that, right? Who would have thought that fourth century Christianity would shift to English, the English-speaking world, which was mainly tribalistic and very barbaric. Who would have known that, right? Who would have predicted that as European Christianity became absolutely secular, that, that simply a new country on a continent that Paul had never heard of or dreamed that exists would become a nation that would send more missionaries to the world globally and spread the gospel than any other 
country in the world. And that is where we are today. Elijah thought that he was the last one. Can I tell you today, it's never over with God. Realize that. It is never over with God. It may seem like it's over. It may seem like it's dead. It may seem like there is not any hope in where you are. But it is never, never over with God because God is not done with you. God is not done with you. I love this chapter as confusing as some of these words are going to be in a moment. I love it because it speaks to you and I about these moments when we think that God has rejected us. Israel must have felt that way in some ways because of what we're about to read. And, and I have to say to you, God is not done with you yet. Understand that. Look at verse 7. This is what he says. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it. Some of them followed the gospel. Some of them did not. But the rest were hardened, it says. But it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear. It's not that they, it's not that they couldn't see the hand of God working in our life. They didn't want to see the hand of God working in our life in this way is what it was. And it says, down to this very day, and David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. It's this, it's this process of hardening of our hearts. And when he uses this word about hardening of our hearts, he talks about a proud heart is what he does. And it's connected contextually with grace for us today. And so what we realize is before you shut me down in this thing, you'd say, Mark, my heart is not hard. And you don't even need to talk to us about that. You know, said, but before you shut me down, listen to what I think Paul has to say to us. Because you have the Jews that are struggling to earn something that's already been freely given to them, and that is God's righteousness. And they're struggling to earn that through self-reliance. And what that does when you struggle to earn things that God has freely given you, what it does to you, it, it builds a resistance to the idea of grace in your life. It does. You begin to resist grace. Why? Let me explain it to you. You begin to line yourself up with God. Here I am, here's God. Here I am in all of the mess of my life. Here's God who is absolutely perfect and holy. And when I line myself up in that comparison, what do I say to myself? I need to get myself in line, don't I? Yeah, here's what I need to do. I need to clean this up. I need to clean that up. I need to take care of this place in my life. And once I take care of that issue in my life, then God's going to accept me. And then things are going to be great for me You know, when I, when I do all of that. And what I realize is the more I do that, the more I try to earn in my life what God has freely given me, the more I build a resistance to grace within my life because I'm doing this on my own. And the more I build a resistance to grace in my life, the harder my heart becomes. Wow. And when my heart is hard, those are the moments that I feel that God has rejected me because things in my life are not going like I thought they would go. And I think that some of you in this room, you're, you're living right there in that place of, of your life this morning. That your heart has become hardened because maybe you almost see the gospel as and I wrote this, a stain on the sovereignty of God because it seems to be 
weak because it's so far beyond your understanding that God would unconditionally love you and care for you and accept you. Can I tell you this morning, grace is, grace is limitless and God is not finished. He's not finished. Wow. So you've said good morning to each other and you said we finally made it. You know, I, I, I do this, I love you, but I think it's good for us as a community to do this. And, and you say, Mark, uh, this is the reason why I try to find a pew by myself, right? Well, that's okay, because that's all right. But he, here's the thing. Could you turn to the person next to you and say, God's not finished with you yet? Could you say that to them for a moment? I think it's good that you do that. Yeah. And, and then say to them, he has a lot of work to do, okay? Say that to them, right? <laughs> True. He has a lot of work to do. And here's the thing. He's doing the work. Isn't that awesome? Yes. That I don't, I don't have to do that. I obey out of love because of my acceptance. Yes. But it's God that's doing the work within me. But I never realized this until I studied through this text. That my resistance to grace hardens my heart. And then those are the moments when I think, well, God has forgotten me. God doesn't love me anymore. God, has, God is nowhere around me or near me. God has left me in this situation all alone. And I become Elijah sitting on the Mount, Mount Horeb. And I'm saying, God, I'm the only guy left, right? God says, no, I'm not finished. Because here's what I would say to you. Unbelief, unbelief does not have the final word. Unbelief is not have the final word. Look at verse 11. So I, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? And, and he's talking about Israel. And, and the reality is, no, they're not beyond redemption. By no means, Paul says, rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. This is one of the scriptures why people don't want to talk from chapter 11. Because it's, it's difficult. He uses the word jealous here. You know? And we think, wait a minute, we always have this negative connotation, this manipulative connotation of what that word simply means. Yes, and what I realize when I see this, and I hope you do before you leave this morning, God always has a plan. It's seldom our plan. That's the reality. It's seldom our plan. Yes. And if God's plan, you know, and I think in, in my, own, my own Markism here, that I, when I look at this, I think, man, you know, if God's plan is to make Israel jealous, then dude, God... I had a plan like that with an old girlfriend one time, and it backfired on me. It really went bad, okay? It, it, it didn't work well at all, and I could tell you the story later, but I probably won't. So here's the thing. Yeah, it, it, it doesn't work. And, and what dif- the difference is that my plan was manipulative, right? God's plan is born out of grace from the perfection and the purity of his own character. Because here's Israel. Most of them have a negative response to the gospel. That's what, that's what has happened with them. And because of their negative response to the gospel, Paul says it's an extremely positive response on the part and outcome of the Gentiles. And I want to say something to you before I go any further. That your salvation as a Gentile is not a consolation prize to God because God's plan for the Jewish people didn't work out. So don't think that. That's not what this is about. God's plan has always been that none perish, but all come to repentance. Realize that. 
That is God's plan in heart. But what I understand is this. God opens opportunities where we can't see opportunity. That's it. That God opens opportunity where you and I cannot see opportunity. In studying this, I've read what theologians have wrote and, and what historians have written about this time. And it lines up so well that what happened is the apostles, they first preached the gospel in the synagogues. And, and when they preach the gospel in the synagogues, the Jews, by and large, reject the gospel. They do. So what does that rejection do? That rejection forces the apostles out of the synagogue into the masses on the street. Who are the masses? They're not going to synagogue. Who are the masses? They're the Gentiles. They're us is exactly what it is. What happens when they take the gospel to the masses? The masses respond overwhelmingly and they come to Christ. And Christianity now becomes a movement of a few of the Jewish people and many Gentiles. I read one historian who said, what would the course of history, or how would it have changed if the Jews in the synagogue in AD 57 had embraced the gospel? It would have changed everything. It would have Christianity would remain sort of as a Jewish thing. Because why? The apostles were comfortable with that environment and where they shared the gospel. The rejection of Israel pushed the gospel out to us. If you don't think God has a plan, you haven't really read the Bible. Yes. What an amazing plan based in grace and mercy and kindness for all. Yes. And he says to so as to make Israel jealous. I thought those were really powerful words because it's not a sinful jealousy. It's not that at all. In fact, the scripture tells us in Exodus 20 and other places that God is jealous for you. Why? Because God is about his glory and for you. So it's a powerful thought. It really is. But I thought, how do I explain this today before we leave? Because I can't leave you hanging here. So I thought about this. Use your imagination for a moment. Suppose you left your parents' house in disobedience. And some of you say, I don't have to imagine that one. You know? Well, just hang on. Okay, You left it in rebellion. And so you're out of your parents' house. You're hungry and you're cold and you're lonely. And all of a sudden you realize, wait a minute, today's Sunday. And at my parents' house, every Sunday, there's Sunday lunch. Oh, that's wonderful, isn't it? Some of you are already thinking about it, aren't you? Yes. There's Sunday lunch. And, and, and you know, I remember going to my grandmother's house as a kid and staying on her farm during the summertime, my, my grandmother and my grandfather. And after, after church, she would always have this amazing lunch prepared, right? Yes. And, and listen, church, when I went to my grandmother and grandfather's church, I mean, I was raised in a Pentecostal wholeness church. And so understand this, church was a marathon, the longer the church service, the better it was, right? Yes, anybody real understand that, right? And so the longer it was, and so two hours, two hours and a half, man, you're getting hungry. I could eat the pew I'm sitting on, right? Yes, yes, and you're getting hungry. What always happened was something miraculous. Yes, that I would be sitting there, and all of a sudden I would look over, and my grandmother's gone. Nobody knew she left. I always thought I'd miss the rapture, you know? She's gone. Where'd she go? She always drove separate because she would leave a little early and she would go home and get lunch ready. And so we would go home with my grandfather. We would drive up and we would go in. And man, there would be things like fried chicken. Oh, the gospel bird. It's wonderful, isn't it? Yes, yes. Be fried chicken, mashed potatoes. Oh, 
My favorite was creamed corn. You ever had creamed corn? Fresh creamed corn. It's unbelievable. My grandmother put a lot of butter in it because in the South, butter makes better, right? And so we put a lot of butter in that. Then she'd fry a little bacon and she'd put the bacon grease in there. Oh, that cures all diseases. It really does. It it is absolutely amazing. Yes. And, And so there'd be biscuits. And then miraculously in my grandmother's kitchen, there was always a cake hiding somewhere. I don't know where it came from. It's like God placed it there on Sunday just for us, you know, because I never remember her baking it. And it was always there. And, and so it's like you have left your parents' house rebelliously. You know that there is a Sunday lunch. You're cold. You're hungry. You're outside. You go to their house, but you don't want to go in. So what is happening? Because why? You, you know you can't be accepted for the things that you've done. So you peer through the window and you see the table and it's set with all the delicacies of a Sunday lunch on there. You see everyone sitting around the table and you see your chair. You see your chair, but someone else is sitting in your chair. And that person that's in your chair is not a biological member of your family. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, yes, you miss the food, but what you miss more than the food is the relationship with your father. You see, this is what Paul is talking about, that the salvation of the Gentiles simply is the motive. It, it, is, the, it is the thing, the vehicle that God uses to bring Israel back to him. And that will happen. And we're going to read from Revelation in a moment. But yet, it, it, is, it is how God works. It's so powerful. It is. Later on, read 17 through 24, these verses. Set in those verses for a, a moment. I can't teach all of them to you today. But it's so powerful about how there is the true vine. And that you and I are Gentiles. That we are grafted. We are grafted into the true vine. And those that are part of the true vine, those branches that God cuts off, that's Israel. But there's going to come a time. There's going to come a time when God will graft those true branches branches back into that of the vine. Such a powerful thought that God has a plan. And he is using our salvation to bring his people back to him. Can I tell you in that beautiful story, God has not rejected you. But God is so intent upon your heart and he's so intent upon a relationship with you that nothing will stop him short of him being in your heart. Nothing. It's a powerful thought. For those of you that think, God, I've done so many things in my life. How could God accept me? How could God love me? Of all the things I've done in my life, how could, how could he do that? Look at verse 12. It says, now if their trespasses means more for the world, talking about Israel, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, that God has brought the gospel to us, to the apostles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? And I read this and I realize that what God has been doing, that he's been working for thousands of years, thousands of years, and the love of the Gentiles for the gospel, yes, is the avenue that God uses to bring the Jewish people back to him. It's a fulfillment of the promise that he made in Genesis chapter 12. If you think for a moment that God is somehow random, that God is somehow reactive to the world and what we do, then you got to go back and you got to read this chapter again. 
Because God has and always has had a powerful plan for his creation. It was always God's idea to save Jew and Gentile alike. And if God, if Israel's rejection of the gospel means that of the salvation for you and I, then what more does it mean for the world for that of Israel's acceptance of the gospel? Let me read to you from the book of Revelation and tie all this together this morning. Chapter 7 and verse 4. Revelation 7 and verse 4. You know that you're serious when you read from either Leviticus or Revelation, right? That's when things get really hairy in church, okay? And so here is Revelation 7 and 4. And I think it ties this all together so well. And then we're going to end together in a doxology this morning. And Paul, and, and John says, as the revelator, and I heard the number of the sealed, he said. Listen to these words, they're so powerful. 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 12, from the tribe of Judah were sealed. And 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. And 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. And 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh. 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon. 12,000 from the tribe of Levi. 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar. And 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun. And 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph. And 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin. Which is the tribe of Paul. And they're sealed. But look at verse 9. Oh, this, this gets me excited when I read this. It does. It does. You know, those being, being raised Pentecostal, that's stuff that comes out inside of me, right? And I want to just like jump when I read this because it's so powerful. It says this, after this I looked and behold a, a great multitude that no, no one could ever number from every nation. Look, Jew and Gentile. Don't ever tell me that God doesn't keep promises. Don't. Please. Look at what he's saying. From all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. Who are they? They're the redeemed. They're the redeemed. It's always been the heart of a loving God to bring redemption to Gentile and Jews. Always has been and always will be. It's God's plan for us. And he said, they're with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And they're not celebrating salvation because it was their idea. They're celebrating salvation because it was always God's plan. And what that says to you, and what it says to me this morning, is I'm not rejected. That even may take thousands of years, but I'm not rejected. And as long as you continue to try to earn the things that God has gifted to you, that you will continue to build resistance in your life to grace. And the more resistance you have in your life to grace, the harder your heart becomes. And the more you see God is not a lover of humanity, but a rejecter of humanity. God says, no, see me for who I am today. 
You see, the greatest joy in our life is to not understand unconditional grace. The greatest joy in our life is to accept it by faith because it's absolutely beyond our understanding. It's beyond our understanding. So if you grew up in traditional or more of a liturgical type church, then you're accustomed to ending the service with a doxology. So for a moment, would you stand with me all over the room? We're going to pray and then we're going to sing. But I, I, I felt like that this was absolutely the direction God wanted us to go in because Paul ends chapters 9, 10, and 11 with a doxology. It's verse 33 through 36. You say, Mark, I'm not sure what a doxology is. The doc, a doxology is a, an expression of praise. And when I say that, what I mean is this. It, it is declaring that what God has said is true about me. That I'm, I'm not rejected. That I am accepted by Him. That as long as I'm living, God is not finished with me. He's not finished with me. So can we read together? It's going to be on the screen. We'll start reading at verse 33 together. And just, just read this with, with your voice and your heart this morning. Not just your head. But let this come from your heart. Establish this. That this is who God is. And that what God has said about you today through his servant Paul is true. Let's read together. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To God be the glory forever. Amen. What a powerful word. That I will never understand his inscrutable ways, his thoughts, are higher than mine. But I embrace them by faith, saying today that I am unconditionally loved by Him and that He has not rejected me as He has not rejected His people. And when I think that life is random, God has a plan. God has a plan. So for a moment, would you just bow your heads and close your eyes as just a way to shut out any distractions around you? Father, you are providential in our lives in that we are not here by chance. That we are here because we have been divinely directed here by the Holy Spirit. That God, that the words that you spoke to us, Father, today from your servant Paul are for us. 
God, we have declared then through the doxology that who you are and what you say about us is truth. Now, Father, sink this deep into our hearts and our spirits this morning. God, you know the ones sitting in this room or standing in this room today that are dealing with those feelings of rejection by you, God. Because life has not gone the way they thought it would go. Things have not worked out the way they thought it would work out. But God, remind us today by your spirit that you've always been working a plan. Always. That, Father, we are yours. Not by our decision to follow you, but by you choosing us. We're yours. So right now, Father, as only you can by your spirit, blanket this room with your acceptance and your love. Challenge us in areas of our lives where we are sinful. Bring us to places of change within our lives through your power within us. Help us in those moments to obey you, not out of fear any longer, but out of love. Because those things that you have said about us today, God, are true. And you have accepted us. And so, Father, we are so thankful for that. You have a plan, God, whether we see it or not. You have a plan. And we will trust you, God. And in those moments when we doubt, there's grace. There is grace. So thank you today, Lord. Thank you, Father.